0: You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to The Strong Towns Podcast. Happy New Year. I hope you're enjoying your... New year. Hope you're enjoying 2018 so far. I know I am. Uh, I've got a few weeks here without any travel, and it's been great to be able to write a lot more and uh, and really kind of dig into things uh, without the. Um, <laughs> I, I love being on the road, but it's exhausting, and uh, especially now with our, our staff getting a lot bigger and. A lot more things going on. It's also kind of stressful to be on the road. And so it's, it's been, it's been a nice break, uh, since, you know, early December to, uh, take a couple weeks off, do some baking, uh, have some family time and now get back to it and really be able to focus on writing. And, uh, and some of the things that I, I, I love doing some of the things that originally got me here doing, uh, strong towns. Uh, so uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be back. I'm glad that uh, we can have a conversation again. I apologize for being a, a day late on this one. I actually recorded it earlier and, and didn't like it. So uh, I decided to scrap the whole thing and start over. So we'll give it a take two here. Um, I, I want to start by referencing you to a piece in The New Yorker by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh, it's from the April 22nd, 2002 issue, and it was a, a piece that... Uh, I think if I said changed my life, that may may sound a little dramatic. Uh, it, 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 It came to me at a time when I was asking a very specific set of questions, and it sent me off in a direction that I have found incredibly fulfilling. The piece is called Blowing Up, and it is the story of Nassim Taleb and a guy named Victor Niederhofer. Uh, Nassim Taleb and Victor Niederhofer were both options traders and both had a very different style and a both have a very different philosophy on trading options and, and trading options. I'm not going to go into the, the details about what trading options involves, but in a in a short sense, it involves risk. It involves essentially pricing risk. Uh, how much do you think a stock will go up or down? Uh, when you're buying an option, when you're selling an option, let's focus on buying. I think it's the easiest one to understand. Let's say you own a, a stock, the stock's at $50. You really can't have any downside risk on that stock. In other words, if the stock went to $40 or $30, you would be really, really harmed by that. Um, But you want the chance of the upside gain in the stock. So what you do is you hold the stock and then you go buy an option. You buy an option to sell the stock back at, say, $45 uh, a, a share. So if the stock drops to 40, what you would do is you would turn around and exercise your option and you would sell it back to the option holder uh, the person you bought the option from the the person who sold it to, you would sell it back to them at forty five dollars so you essentially put a floor under how much you can lose. What is that option worth? Well, the option is really worth uh, essentially the amount of risk that there is that that particular stock is going to go below forty five dollars a, a share um, How do you price that i mean the the risk is is you know a function of the volatility. How long the window is you have to exercise that option? You know, is it an option that expires in a month? Does it expire in a year? Does it expire in 10 years? Uh, You know, how volatile has this stock been? There's a whole line of thinking that suggests, and this is the Victor Niederhofer side of the equation, Uh, there's a whole line of thinking that suggests that if you study uh, you know, thousands of different stocks and thousands of different scenarios, and and back test things, and and basically draw up these nice bell curves, and look at the day to day fluctuations of stocks o- over periods of time. You can pretty much, uh, with, with with a high degree of confidence, uh, predict the level of risk that a stock entails. What what is the likelihood that it will wind up, uh, you know? One order of magnitude, either way, of its current price. Two orders of magnitude. Ten orders of magnitude. What what what, what is the uh, likelihood of those events happening? Um, this is the, this is done by quants on Wall Street, and a lot of what we see in Wall Street is the work of quants—people who are looking out and quantifying risk in one way or the other. And the idea is if you can quantify the risk, you can identify places where risk is either overvalued or undervalued, and you can buy and sell options accordingly. Nassim Taleb uh, essentially rejects this notion. And I think even more to the point, what he has said is that we're really bad at uh, assessing risk. And not only are we really bad at assessing risk, but we're really bad at assessing a specific type of risk, uh, rare events, what, what what in the business would be called a tail risk. And that denotes in the bell curve, if you think of a a, a standard bell curve in the middle, it's very thick. Out on the edges, uh, it grows very, very thin. That far edge is called the tail. How fat is that tail? How thick is that tail? How far does that tail go out? And that, ta- that tail contains a lot of risk, a lot of things that are essentially unknown and unexpected. And not just unknown and unexpected, but things that really can't be anticipated, right? Um, things that uh, y- you can sit down and and be, you know, your job is to assess risk and to think of all the things that could happen and, and plan for it. Uh, you know, these are tail risks is what they're called. They're unpriceable risk. Right. And what Nassim Taleb was say is that we as humans um, are terrible at tail risk. We're, we're, we're terrible at assessing these, uh, these unexpected, unexpected things. we, we um, dismiss them. We undervalue them. We underprice them. And by the way, uh, we underprice them in both ways. Right. We underprice them on the downside. Uh, you know, what, what is the risk that we're going to end up in a you know, nuclear war with North Korea right now? Well, th- there's a whole lot of things that would have to happen to have that. It's, it's actually very unlikely. Um, but there's a chance there, right? If you were going to write an insurance policy on that, if you were going to you know, bet on the stock market based on just that factor, uh, how would you price that? I mean, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to do. The thing about our market system is that we assume people do that. People don't do that. It's, it's impossible. You really can't. You can't take that into account. But not only do we, uh, you know, uh, not price risk on the downside, we also don't price gain on the upside in that way. you know what are the odds that uh there will be a cure for cancer tomorrow like a miracle cure come out and uh all of a sudden it will change everything about human longevity and it will change uh you know a, a whole bunch of different companies stock values it, it will change everything about you know how how we it would just change society in in massive ways, many positive, uh, some, you know, quite challenging. Uh, How do you, how do you price that in, right? You can't, those are quintessential black swans, things that, you know, we could sit down and say our possibilities to happen, but we really have no idea what their likelihood is. We also don't understand what their necessarily effect would be if they happened. This is Nassim Taleb. And if you put that into an investment strategy, uh, what Nassim Taleb has essentially discovered is that uh, if you uh, if 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 you buy options in the very far ranges of the bell curve in and, and those fat tails, uh, you will lose money regularly. You will always lose a little bit of money, but on the days when uh, things unexpected happen, uh, you will make huge amounts of money right? Because that that risk is underpriced. That risk is undervalued. If you look at the market today and you look at the way quants uh, calculate risk, uh, by Naseeb's Taleb's calculation, they will say these very rare events should happen, you know, once every thousand years. And in fact, they happen once every five to seven years, right? So massively underpriced. Um, Read the article, Blowing Up. We'll link to it. It's fantastic. It it, it really changed my... uh, my view of things and not necessarily change my view, but crystallized a lot of those deep misgivings that I had and gave them voice because I am at the core, I'm a saver. I'm a, I'm a prudent conservative kind of person. Uh, I grew up in a family uh, where my grandfather lived through the great depression. Uh, he would tell me tales of sleeping in the barn and uh, you know, trying to find food and I mean he this is a guy who, you know, we would go for walks as a kid and he would see a, a, a aluminum can in the ditch. And he'd tromp off into the ditch and grab the can and and you know all muddy and gross and whatever and he'd carry it a mile back home and then go and crush it and put it in this can thing and then uh, when the can thing got full he'd bring it in and get a buck fifty and save that and uh, you know th- this is these are the kind of people that I grew up around these were like very influential people in my life I'm not going to claim that I grew up destitute. Um, I have I have uh I have seen destitute I have seen immense poverty I, I did not grow up in that. Um but I I didn't grow up uh very comfortable. Um I grew up on a farm. Um <laughs> we there were many months we had no cash, no money. We always had food, right? One of the things about being on a farm and you can read about this in the uh in World War 1 and World War 2 and in the Weimar Republic hyperinflation and you know the farmers Uh, didn't necessarily do well in the good times, um, but they didn't starve in the bad times. And I guess that's kind of the way I grew up. We didn't starve. Um, And so, you know, I, I, when I got through college and became a professional, uh, I was, you know, in a, in a rather large extended family. um, You know, I'm in a generation now of people that have been able to become professionals And, uh, you know, I, I'm the only engineer. I'm the only one. Um, we've got a lot of teachers. Uh, I'm trying to think of what other people would Yeah. I'm, I'm the only technical person. So I'm kind of, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, the one who made it maybe we'll say, and I'm being kind to my family. Uh, they're all very good, decent people. Um, but you know, for me when I got my first job, uh, I, got it. And I actually chose the job I did for a number of reasons, but one of them that was enticing to me was that it had a 401k I could save. Um, the other one had some retirement plan, but it wasn't as, you know, it wasn't as good. It didn't have matching. It, it, it didn't have the value that the 401k did. And so I'm 44 now. I've been working professionally for over, over 20 years, uh, except for a few years when I went to graduate school uh, when I was starting my own business, when that business was failing, uh when things were going really bad, and I was uh having trouble paying employees and uh you know keeping things afloat, all except for a few years in those twenty years, I have saved and by saved, I mean my wife and I and my wife is a very uh prudent uh you know money conscious kind of person as well. Uh, we share those traits. Um, she would save, she, you know. It was her deal to save too. So we have saved a, a decent portion of our income, uh, you know, for, for twenty years, basically. That gives you um, a little bit of money, right? I'm I'm not uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sitting here claiming to be uh, wealthy. Um, but I am one of these like prudent savers who is kind of, you know, uh, proving the rule that if you are a prudent saver over a long period of time, uh, you can build up a certain level of security, right? Well, here's what the blowing up article did for me. It, it, it taught me about risk and why, um, I was both uncomfortable, uh, doing nothing and uncomfortable being like very risky. And let me, let me back up a little bit, because when I got my first job with an engineering firm, they had a 401k, and after one year, I qualified to be in. And I'm telling you, the day I qualified, I started putting 10% of what I made into the 401k. And I was really uh, mad. I was, I was really disappointed in my investment options. This was a, a, a firm where you know, pretty much everybody else you know the the next person to me in age was over a decade older than me pretty much everybody was two or three decades older than me uh the 401k they had had three options uh and this was you know 1997 right <laughs> option number 1 conservative option number 2 ultra conservative option number 3 money market <laughs> so for those of you too young to remember one thousand, nine hundred and ninety-seven in the investment world, uh, this was the time of you know the dot-com mania, and when I pushed uh, at, at the office to expand our options, um, I started investigating like what other options were available in the company that we did our four hundred and one k through, and there was I remember one like technology option that had like one hundred and ninety-seven percent returns in a year. And I kept saying like, look, 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 I'm 22 years old. You know, I'm a young guy. Like you might all be ultra conservative, but I've got time on my hands and and I can afford some volatility. And it's interesting because when you go uh, into the investment literature, at kind of like a, a one-on-one level, uh, which, uh, as a side, I had an opportunity to do here over a break. Um, I won't, should I mention the company? Sure. I'll mention them. Edward Jones. I had, a, I had a reason to go in and start an Edward Jones account. And the reason doesn't really matter, but, um, I did. And I went through their process and their process include this whole like risk evaluation. And they basically ask you, um, you know, in like four or five different questions. And they said like, we have to do this. We have to have this in there. It's you know, the regulators require us to do this. And it's part of your, uh, your, your profile. And, you know, if we're going to manage your money and I'm like, you're not managing my money. You just have an account. Uh, I'll tell you what to do. And they're like, well, we have to do this anyway. So basically they went through and, and, you know, do you want a lot, no risk, a lot of risk or medium risk? Uh, If stocks went uh, up, you know, a lot and then down a lot, um, are you okay with that or would you want something that didn't go up much but also didn't go down much? And they ask you the same question like multiple ways. And basically the answer that you wind up giving them uh, is, well, medium, 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 medium. I, I want uh, some gain, but I don't want to be crazy. I'm not like gambling. Um, and I want to protect my uh, my money. Um, but i don't you know i i i don't want to just bury it in the backyard right like i want to do something with it so you wind up with like all this medium 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 kind of stuff right and you know I, when i was getting into saving uh you know when i actually had like money to start saving and start building uh wealth is what you're doing um i kind of had the you know the standard indoctrination That as a 22-year-old, what I needed to do was be invested in things that were really risky because I had all the time in the world. If my portfolio went down, I could recover because I got, you know, 40, 50 years of saving here before I'm going to need any of this money. Might as well ride it out, right? Um, (laughs) The dot-com boom, like, smacked me alongside the the head, right? Because that wasn't like a a, uh, – I wasn't making like prudent investments to save my money. I, I basically like lost everything, right? I had um I'll give you one example. I had bought Yahoo uh at I don't know, over two hundred dollars a share. It was like two twenty, two thirty, something in that range. Uh I had, you know, researched the company. I I really liked the company. I had read some articles, uh, I had listened to some interviews uh i i you know yeah they had no earnings or they they might have, i think they actually did have some earnings they were one of the few dot coms with some earnings at that point so it wasn't like i was investing in just some crazy you know crazy startup but uh you know yahoo it seemed like they had like a really great business plan um and in fact i think if you know it, in retrospect if google hadn't come along they were like the uh you know yahoo was like the player to beat at that point right they were the uh, the google of their time in a sense uh google discovered that you could you know search was the deal not having some directory uh which was their you know brilliant first innovation but yahoo you know seemed like at the time a really good investment it went from it got up to like 240 or 250 a share uh it went all the way down to like 6 or 7 um I basically had like $1,200 into it and wound up with like 35 bucks. right? That, that's not something you come back from, right? That, that's, <laughs> that's, that's not like, you know, your buy and hold investment strategy uh, doesn't work with that, right? That's not, that's not going to pay off for you. And I'm glad I learned that lesson in 1998 or 1999. I'm, I'm glad I learned the lesson that buy and hold is really stupid, right? It's, it's, it's a really dumb way to be. Uh, and so I was struggling with, you know, what to do. And I also, you know, I'm going to get at the end here into talking about cities, uh, because there's a, there's a lot of crossover here in thinking. Um, but I, I basically got to the point where I realized that, uh, I was the sucker at the card table. And, you know, if, if, um, if, uh, if we look at the way most of us invest, most of us are, I think the term that some Wall Street people use a while back, we're Muppets, right? I think it was just to say, you know, we, we don't really have our own voice, our own thoughts, our own ideas. We, we're just the dumb money at the card table. One of the things that uh, blowing up the article by Malcolm Gladwell in The New Yorker talked about was uh, something, and he didn't use this term, but I'll use the term survivorship bias, the idea that uh, we look at the people who did well, and then we create a narrative around that, uh, but we don't really look at the people who failed. And, uh, and if we do, we, we, we tend to create an alternate narrative around that. He uses in the article uh, this kind of game, uh, theoretical game. He said, if you take... Uh, Ten thousand hedge fund managers, you know all the all the hedge fund managers on Wall Street, and he estimated around ten thousand. He said if you took all of them and had them uh, for one year invest, and half of them made money, and half of them lost money purely by chance, right? No uh, genius on their part, just purely by chance. Half of them made money, half of them lost money, and 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 what you did is that every year you took the ones that lost money out and kept just the ones who made money and did the game again, and then again, and then again, and again, what you would happen, what what would happen is that at the, at the first year you'd start with 10,000, then you'd have 5,000, then you'd have 2,500, then you'd have 1250 and on and on and on and on. And you would eventually get to like a dozen people. Right. And then the next year you get to six and the next year you get to three. And, and if you look at that, if you If if we think about how we would look at this today, we would look at that those 12 individuals or those six individuals that made money 10 years in a row, right? You made money 10 years in a row. You must really know what you're doing. You must be really smart. And maybe they are smart, and I'm sure they are really, really smart. But the point of it is, how do you know that they made the money because of genius or because of chance? In a pool of 10,000 people, someone is going to make money 10 years in a row, right? Someone is going to. How do you know that they did that because they're a genius? And how do you know they did it just out of sheer luck? You don't. You don't. And this was a really humbling thing for me. Because when you look at like the uh, the Edward Jones investment strategy, they'll show you like you know this fund made money five years in a row. Here's their five year return rate. Uh, you know you start to study this stuff. I remember going on the Motley Fool discussion boards back in the early two thousands and really digging into this stuff, and being you know r- r- deeply excited about it. And you'd say, well, this guy's a brilliant money manager. Look what he was able to do four years in a row. And Uh, I started to, at a certain point, like doubt this, but I didn't really understand why I couldn't really put my finger on it until I came up with Nassim Taleb, until I read this article blowing up and it sent me on this kind of crusade to, to better understand risk. We are not good at, at risk. We're also not good at explaining, uh, success and failure. Uh, we are more apt to take that person, you know, who's made money, Warren Buffett, right? And say, you know, Warren Buffett is way smarter than everybody else. Why? Because he has billions of dollars. And this guy over here who, who doesn't have billions of dollars uh, and didn't become Warren Buffett, he is not as smart and can't quite figure things out because, you know, clearly if he was, he would have billions of dollars like Warren Buffett. Um, I think Nassim Taleb said uh, at one point, uh, I'm going to try to paraphrase a little bit. Everybody who has made a lot of money on Wall Street, if you study them, you'll find that like the common denominator is they take risk, right? Like the thing that separates them from everybody else is that they're willing to take great risk. And so, you know, if you were to write a book, you'd say, uh, well, if you want to be successful on Wall Street, what you need to do is be willing to take great risk. The problem is, is that you can go to the the Wall Street graveyard, right? The people who failed at it. And, and and that, 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 uh, that pool is way deeper, right? Way deeper. And what will you find in all them? Well, you'll find that what they take risk too, (laughs) right? Like they have the same proclivity for risk. So what's the difference between the, you know, the person who made it and the person who didn't, uh, it's often just dumb luck, right? It's often just chance. And that doesn't sit well with us. It doesn't sit well with us. We don't like that because we'd like to think that we're actually in charge. We like to think that we can actually go out, make a plan, do a prediction, uh, you know, stick to it and have it pay off. We can't, we can't. And I, I think coming to grips with that, particularly where I was at in my life, coming to grips with that concept was really liberating for me because it, it allowed me to... And I'm going to say this, uh, I'm I'm not sure how this is going to come out of my mouth. I'm I'm saying this with a a lot of humility, right? It allowed me to be smart without uh, having to be perfect. Or let me try to say this a different way. It allowed my imperfection to not mean I was a dumb or a failure, right? My business that I ran essentially failed, um, it didn't fail. I never declared bankruptcy. I made payroll every time. Uh, you know, I never cheated anybody. I never shorted anybody. I, I, I you know, paid my debts and and all that. Um, but I lost a lot of money. I mean, I lost a crazy amount of money and, you know, the business did not do well and it didn't do well, uh, you know, you you could say a whole bunch of reasons why it didn't do well, but I can give you like the summation. Uh, my business peaked in 2006. I was running a planning company. We were doing great work. We had all kinds of contracts. And then all of a sudden people stopped building homes. And when people stop building homes, you don't really need a planner to write home permits for you, right? You, you don't need a planning firm to come in and help you redo your zoning code. So before everybody else crashed, I crashed. I, I had 13 staff and five different offices and, uh, you know, it was growing and growing. And by the time we got to 2008 and the rest of the economy started to hemorrhage, I was down to two offices and three people. It was brutal. It was painful. And, you know, I had six figures, you know, I was deep into six figures in debt, money that I owed with like, you know, hardly any cash flow. This was a, this was a disaster. Um, I think finding Nassim Taleb, finding this article blowing up and, and getting into this, uh, allowed me to uh, be a failure without being a failure, right? It allowed me to um, to fail. Let me put it that way. It allowed me to fail without being a failure. And I, I, I think that's a really important thing. If I went back, I never would have done most of the things that I did, right? Like I I think it was really dumb. I ran I, – I had a chance to – uh, have it turn out really well. I mean, I, you know, could have gone in a very different direction in life. And, uh, had I started that business five years earlier, you know, had I, had I been five years younger starting the same exact business, uh, I would have hit 2008 with five years of, uh, you know, I, I basically would have hit the, the housing boom with a very established, ready to rock and roll kind of business. I would have had seven, eight years of enormous profits, you know, doing incredibly well, saved a ton of money, uh, probably owned my house, you know, had a lot of equity. And when I hit 2008, I would have, you know, not had any reason to start a blog and walk away and <laughs> do something else. Right? I would have been a vastly different person had things been five, you know, just five years offset. It was If I was 49 a day instead of 44, things would have been very different. Does that somehow make, uh, the, you know, the person who succeeded, Brilliant, and the person who failed, uh, you know, not. No, it doesn't. It's 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 a whole bunch of different factors. We're not able to do this as humans. And so, what I have realized, what what I have come to uh, to grasp, is you know just the role that risk plays in life. And today, I'm going to. I mean, we're half hour into this podcast. My whole point here was to answer a question uh, that I had gotten, that I had uh, had a, a conversation with a colleague on. Uh, and the question was, you know, how do you invest? What, what, what do you do with your money? Uh, and actually, the question was worded, uh, can you give me some investment advice? Like, what do I do with my money? And I said, no, I, I can't. I, I won't. Like that should You should never ask someone that. Don't ask them for investment advice. Ask them, what do you do with your investments? And so, what I want to talk about today is what I do with my investments, um, because I, I think it will give a, a little bit of a, a, a window into not only my mindset, but hopefully, here at the end, um, I will uh, I will tie this into basically a, a strong town's way of thinking, um, because I, th- I think they're directly related. So, once a year, I sit down and rebalance uh, my family's portfolio. Uh, I go through everything we own, how things went and I rebalance. I am, uh, you could say I'm a buy and hold kind of person. I am, as we go along here, I'll explain. I do a little bit of, uh, a little bit of trading throughout the year. If, if things come up, I do monitor things like every day. So I'm, I'm like aware of what's going on in the market, but I don't, uh, I don't, and as you'll see, I don't own any, any real stocks that I do a lot of deep research on. So my, my research days are long behind me. My days of pretending I know something when I really don't uh, are, are way, way beyond you know, past. I, I, I fully acknowledge I don't know anything, and my portfolio reflects that. Let me first talk about my goal. Uh, my goal, first of all, is to limit my downside risk. I don't want to lose money. And 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 very specifically, I don't want to lose uh, you know the 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 money that I've saved and accumulated slowly uh, building over time. I don't want that to just evaporate. I don't want any risk of you know to use Malcolm Gladwell's term blowing up. I want zero risk of blowing up. I never want a day to wake up and find I'm like fifty percent poorer. Right, and like that can that cannot be an option for me. I cannot blow up. Um, I want to limit my downside risk. I really want to be able to go through day-to-day volatility of the market. I want to be able to go through rare events. I want to be able to go through unforeseen things. And I don't want to lose what I have built. I, 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 I'm all about stability, right? Within that context, I want to also reserve some opportunity for gain, I am not looking to shoot the moon. I'm not looking to 10x my portfolio. I'm not looking to, you know, get uh, instantly rich off of some scheme uh, or some, you know, lucky thing. Um, But I do understand the role that, you know, a, a certain level of luck plays. And I have positioned myself to capture a little bit of that upside. I would like to think I've intelligently done that, but maybe not. Uh, maybe I've, you know, will be lucky. Maybe I will be unlucky. Maybe I'm really smart. Maybe I'm not. Um, so those are my two goals. Uh, I want to limit my downside and I want to get as much exposure as I can to upside. So here's what I've done right now. 65% of what I have saved 65% is in cash, uh, us dollars. Uh, it's just sitting there, um, I I I I, uh, I have a lot of cash. Um, it's sitting in accounts, getting you know 04 percent interest or whatever. It's not growing at all, um, but it's also not losing either. And you could argue that, well, Chuck, inflation is you know inching up to two percent, so your money's losing value every year. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of that. I can handle that. I'm uh, I'm good with it. I I have sixty five percent of my money in cash, and it's not going down. If the world collapses tomorrow, if the stock market drops, you know, twenty five percent, thirty percent, fifty percent, sixty percent, I will that that part of my portfolio will will not nothing will happen to it. Will be fine. I have basically like a floor that I will not go below. Right. I could see uh, in the future me reducing that part of my portfolio. Um, I think stocks are way overvalued right now. I think bonds are way overvalued right now. I don't see a lot of good investment options. And so part of having 65% in cash is me saying, like, I don't know a good place to put the money. Um, I could see me going down to 25%, 30% cash and uh, using the rest to buy things um, if I thought they were good things to buy. But I don't. I don't right now. So I'm just sitting on it. It is just a nest egg. I'm just saving it, right? and this is going to, you know, this is going to tie in with the cash. 15% of what I have is in metals. Now, I'm not one of these, like, you know, Gold bugs, uh, the one who's you know thinks that someday we're gonna have the apocalypse and I'm gonna be buying bread with uh, junk silver out on the street. I don't have gold bars buried in my backyard. I, I don't think that someday I'm gonna be shaving off a, a little bit of gold and using that to you know barter for uh, a couple chickens. I, I don't think that at all. Um, here's why I own metals. Uh, I own 15 percent of my portfolio in metals. Um, because they are a, a, a store of value. Um, they are you know not going to uh, go to zero again. Uh, I'm limiting my downside risk. Now, metals are a little bit more volatile, obviously, than cash. But I, there's an adage that I read once that I, 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 th- I believe is true and makes a lot of sense to me, and I think it holds over time. Um, it went something like this back in the 1800s. And there was a specific date, you know, here's what an ounce of gold was worth. And basically that amount of money could buy you a really nice suit at the time. And then they had like another, you know, snapshot in the 1920s or something. And then another 1950s. And, and, and then, you know, you look and basically all throughout time, what an ounce of gold bought you, if you turned it into whatever the currency equivalent was at the time, you could get a nice suit. And today what's gold valued at? It's around thirteen hundred dollars an ounce, basically the cost of a, a really nice suit. Um, you're not going to get rich holding gold, and I think you know a lot of people who speculate in gold are are trying to uh, you know get they they think that something's going to happen and things are going to blow up and gold is going to become worth ten thousand dollars an ounce or whatever. I I don't know whatever. Um, I'm I'm not in gold because I think it's some great investment thing that's going to make me rich. I'm in metals. Uh, And I'll tell you the specific metals here in a second. I'm in metals because I think I'm not going to lose money, right? I think that uh, over time, I am going to uh, maintain and sustain what I have actually invested. Now, what metals am I invested in? Uh, I don't buy um, paper metal. So uh, for those of you that are invested in the market, there's some ETFs like uh, the GLD and SLV. There's some other ones that I think are a little bit better that actually are backed uh, a little bit more soundly. Um, I, I'm not, I, I have invested in those in the past, um, but I've been able now to uh, kind of get to the point where I could switch over to uh, physical metal. Uh, I don't have any of this on site. So don't come and like break into my house and think you're going to get Gold, you know, metals. I don't, it's all in like a, a vault somewhere, uh, that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a trust like, um, that manages all this stuff, uh, you know, not even in Minnesota and it's just got my name on it. Uh, I, right now I am almost all invested in silver. Uh, there's this thing called the silver gold ratio. Uh, basically, um, silver and gold are similar metals in that they have, Uh, uses for them that are general, like commercial uses. Like I have gold on my finger right now. I've got a wedding band. Um, My wife has silver jewelry. She has gold jewelry. Um, I just finished that book about uh, the Aztecs and uh, Cortez. And, you know, one of the things you see is that even in the Aztec civilization, while they had things they valued like uh rare feathers and certain kinds of artwork they also hoarded gold they also had huge stashes of gold gold has just intrinsic value the gold silver ratio is uh kind of an observation that over time gold and silver tend to trade in a range uh at the low end uh, around 50 at the high end around 75 so uh you know, silver is, uh, you know, takes 75 ounces of silver at the high end to buy an ounce of gold. The low end, 50 ounces of silver. Right now we're at the high end. So we're at like 74. So I actually own all silver. And uh, if this drops, which would mean silver price would go up or the gold price would go down and it gets down closer to 50, what I will do is I will sell silver and I will buy gold. Um, but I will buy more gold ounces than what I had originally. Right. So the idea is if you just keep an eye on this ratio and it's not something that changes overnight, it changes over the course of months or years. Uh, if you keep an eye on this ratio, you can switch back and forth between different metals and essentially with the same amount of money accumulate more ounces, which is actually the, the goal of investing in metals. It's not to get rich. It's to preserve your wealth and to over time, you know, build the uh, amount that you have. Um, 15% of my portfolio in metals. Uh, 5% is in oil. Uh, you know, you can see here like I, I like things that are tangible, right? So cash, metals, oil. Um, 5% is in oil and I don't buy oil companies. I don't really like oil companies uh, for a variety of reasons. Some of them moral, some of them financial. I, I just am not a big fan. Uh, but I, I like oil and I like oil because I use it. Uh, you use it. We all use it. It is a valuable commodity. One of the interesting things about oil, uh, that doesn't take a lot of brains to figure out is that when oil prices are low, uh, production goes offline. If it costs you $50 a barrel to pull oil out of the ground and oil is at $40 a barrel, you stop pumping oil. And when you stop pumping oil, oil becomes more scarce and the laws of supply and demand say that when a product becomes more scarce, uh, the demand is there. Um, what happens is that uh, the price goes up. Um, when the price goes up, what happens? More producers come in because now you can make money selling it. And when more producers come in, they produce more and you get a glut and prices go down. So if you watch the oil markets, there have been uh, you know, many opportunities in my lifetime Uh, to buy oil somewhere in the $20, $30, $40 a barrel uh, range, and then to sell oil in the $80, $90, $100 a barrel range. That's a really good rate of return. Um, Right now, uh, I own oil. It's trading somewhere in the $60 a barrel range. When it gets to $80 or above, I will start to sell my oil you know, my shares, I will start to sell off. I, I do own paper oil. I'm not pretending I own real oil here. I don't own barrels of oil, like in the backyard. Uh, I own, uh, if you want to know the exact ticker symbol, I own WTI. And I think DBO is the other one. Uh, there are a couple of, um, you know, basically they reflect the price of West Texas crude, uh, which is like the standard industry price. So I just keep 5% of my portfolio in that range. Um, if it gets over 80, I will start to sell off. Um, if it gets down towards 40, I will start to buy again. Uh, in the meantime, I will be in cash, right? On the way down, I will be in cash. On the way up, I will be in oil. Right now we're on the way up, so I am in oil and uh, and very happy with that. But it's only 5%. So I'm, you know, recognize the volatility. I'm not trying to go all in on that. 10% of what I've got is in international stocks. Um. Because I've got so much in cash, uh, cash metal, oils, because I've got so much cash in U.S. dollars, um, to kind of hedge my U.S. dollars a little bit and also to get some upward exposure in stocks, uh, what I've done is I've taken 10% and I have bought mutual funds that invest internationally in dividend-paying uh companies long established blue chip dividend paying companies and what i'm going for there is that things that uh you know, have been around a long time uh are established are not trying to experience a lot of appreciation in stock price uh but just you know do things that people need uh that are you know going to continue to pay year after year w- water works are uh, an example right like I they sell water, uh, sell gas, um, you know, manufacture you know, basic things that people need. What you're looking for is like the boringest company possible with the longest track record of just being boring and stodgy and paying three, four percent dividends a year. That's the company that I want. And I've got ten percent of my portfolio in that. They're they're almost all in Europe. There's a few in Asia. Um, you know, but these are mutual funds. So they own hundreds of different companies, but I've gone through and and looked at, you know, the different ones that they own. And this is the, like the mix that I want, uh, again, will it go up? Possibly. Will it go down? Possibly. Uh, I get dividend, you know, payments regularly. Those get kind of plowed back into getting more shares in the mutual fund. Um, I own two different funds, about 5% of my portfolio in each. Uh, I, I find that, you know, if there's dollar fluctuation, uh, some you know, if if the euro strengthens versus the dollar, that fund will go up. If the if the dollar strengthens versus the euro, that fund will go down, because of currency exchange. So it gives me a little bit of like currency hedging, and also gives me some dividends, and also gives me some exposure to stocks, but outside of the the U.S. stock market, which I think is insane, right? That's ninety five percent. That is the 95% that – and I kind of went through it from what I think is like the least risky to the most risky of that 95%. But I think basically you'd look at that 95% and say, Chuck, like that is a portfolio that has very limited downside risk, right? But you're also probably not going to make all that much money. Um, You're not going to lose a lot. Uh, you know, if, if things go bad, if things get tough, if things get difficult, uh, you could lose some there. Like you've got some downward exposure, uh, but not in a huge way, right? Not in a huge way. Um, You know, you're limited in the amount you're going to lose. That's 95% of my portfolio. The last 5%, what is that? That's like the crazy money, right? That That's the... That's a, that's the, uh, those are the bets, right? Those are the gambles. Now they're not all total. They're not gambles. I didn't like go to the casino and put it down on red. You know, these are, these are things that I think I've researched and know and understand and companies that I like and that I've invested in that I think have a lot of upside potential. Um, but you know, this is basically the part of my portfolio where I say, I think I'm smart. Uh, and I think I know some things. But if I don't, uh, or if I, you know, uh, the, 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 if things happen that I'm not planning on, or haven't researched, or haven't priced in, uh, I've I've got like limited downside, right? Let me give you one example here. Uh, there's a company called Liquid Metal Technologies. Its ticker symbol is LQMT. Uh, I own like four thousand shares of Liquid Metal Technologies. It shares that it, it 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 trades at like twenty cents a share right now. Um. I came across this company years ago. Uh, I read about the patents that they had and the things that they uh, did, that basically the technolo- the underlying technology. I, I know enough about – I mean I had class uh, classes in metal structures and, and uh, things like that. Uh, I understand what supercooled metals are, uh, their properties. And, and they had fa- figured out some really kind of innovative ways to deal with metals, uh, supercooled metals. Uh, to build things that were really strong um but uh also kind of do it in a dynamic way uh, i I love the technology I think it 's great um i 've discovered these people are terrible at running a business right they 're just they've i think they 've lost money like every quarter in the last like ten years or something they' they 're terrible they run this company terribly um but you know I read their reports. I look at their cash flow. I have occasionally listened in on their conference calls. Um, They have a strategy. Uh, I think it could work. Uh, I definitely think the technology is great if they can figure out some of the management stuff, if they can make it work, if they can get the right kind of applications in place and get them out in the marketplace. Uh, This is a stock that I could see going from 20 cents a share to $2, $5, $10, $50. I mean, I, I I don't know how high it could go. It would it would really depend on what happened, right? Like if if some uh you know, bullet manufacturer, if the US government decides tomorrow that like all bullets shall be tipped with liquid metal uh, you know, technology, which is not like a far fetched kind of thing. I mean, that that could happen. Uh, that stock could be worth hundred dollars a share. Um, well that'd be pretty sweet right <laughs> um so so in other words and, and i I've got a lot of upside potential with this one um my downside potential is limited because it's a very small portion of my portfolio it's a it's a it's a little bit of the money that I've got saved it's not a huge amount if it goes to zero and I lose it all I still have this huge chunk of money right this huge chunk of my savings that i'm'm I'm not gonna lose uh but you know I do have upside potential there. So 5% of my portfolio is in things like that. Things that um, you know could go up, uh, could go up a lot, um, but could go to zero. I, I didn't... Let me give you another example. I didn't buy Bitcoin, right? I had some people tell me years ago that I really should. And I, I thought about it. I dabbled in it. I'm sure there's a lot of people saying that today. Like, I thought about buying Bitcoin. Oh, I wish I had... Um, there's a lot of those things in life. you know. Don't beat yourself up over it. We all think about things, but thinking and doing are two different things. There wasn't really a mechanism I was comfortable with. I mean, I looked into it, uh, but there wasn't really a mechanism I felt comfortable with in purchasing uh, Bitcoin, um, and I didn't feel comfortable with the bank system that they have. I mean, you can see the, the Mt. Gox thing where... Uh, and I still can't explain exactly what happened there, but people lost a lot of money. Um, I wasn't comfortable with it, uh, even as like a risk, you know, high risk bet and low sense. Um, but had you bought Bitcoin like two years ago, that would be a great thing for like the 5% of your portfolio that has a lot of upside. Right. Could go to zero, could be worth nothing, could have thousands of percent gain, which is what we've seen uh, in the last year. Um, I would not go buy Bitcoin today. Right. Like I don't feel that way about Bitcoin now. Uh, I feel like Bitcoin is a, is a tulip bubble. <laughs> I like, I would not buy it today, but you know, if, if, uh, you know, if, if, if that's the thing that you research and you believe in and you think is going to do it, uh, you know, to me, if I felt that way about Bitcoin, uh, I would do that in that 5% of my portfolio. That is the, uh, the place where I think I'm clever, right. The the place where I think I'm, I'm smart and clever and, and know what I'm doing. Uh, that's the, that's the area that I proved that in, this is my portfolio, uh, this is how I invest. And, and I, I, I I hope that that makes sense. The, the idea of capturing, uh, some upside potential, but a strong emphasis on limiting the downside risk. Now go back to my conversation with Edward Jones. Um, do, do you like, uh, volatility? No. Uh, do you want upside gain? Yes. (laughs) <laughs> you know, when you balance your risk, uh, do you want a portfolio with uh, low risk or high risk? Uh, yes. Right. Um, do you want a portfolio that uh, uh, has any potential going down? Uh, no, no, not at all. Um, do you want a portfolio that has the chance of uh, appreciation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they don't, they don't, th- you know, the standard model that they give you uh, doesn't work. It doesn't work with what I want to do. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. Yet, that is the standard model. And the reason why they went had me go through this thing, and they explained this to me, they go, like, the regulators make us do this. Because if we're going to manage your money, we've got to be able to turn around and say, like, this is what they told us their risk profile was. Well, my risk profile is not in there. Which ones are? The The standard ones. The ones that, like, everybody thinks you should have, right? The non-Nassim Taleb ones. The Victor Niederhofer ones. And let me tell you something about this portfolio, this standard You know, I want to be in the middle of the road. I don't want a lot of risk. I don't want a lot of uh, potential for downside, Um, but I want some gains and I, I, you know, I'm not going to bury my money back in the yard. Um, You know, you are the sucker at the card table, right? You're, you're in the middle of the road. You're going to get run over. You basically have very limited upside risk, but tons of downside risk. That, that to me is what this moderate blended portfolio is, right? Let's. Switch to cities. And let me kind of tie this together because if you're a city today, if you're a local government, I think that the thing you need to be obsessed with financially is the downside. I think that what, what you owe to your community, what you owe to your taxpayers, your property owners, your residents, the people who live in your community, what you owe them more than anything is stability you owe them stability. You have to have no downside risk. You can't blow up. That has to be what you do. You can't do anything that would have your community blow up. It's just not responsible, right? It's just not responsible. It's not responsible way to be. And so how do you make investments in your community that have no chance of blowing up? How do you take that 95% of your portfolio uh, that you're doing in a city and, and put it into things that are guaranteed to essentially hold their value or have very modest increases in, in appreciation? How do you do that? Well, uh, let's switch over to uh, you know, the, the Joe Minicozzi Urban 3 analysis. When you start to look at, as we did in the city of Lafayette, uh, as Joe has literally in hundreds of cities around the country, uh, what we find over and over again is that places with traditional development patterns, core downtown, surrounding walkable neighborhoods, uh, those places tend to have very low costs of providing service, very high per acre revenues. They tend to, in in just a short accounting sense, be profitable, right? They uh, actually, uh, uh, you know, are in your portfolio as a city, they're actually making you money. If you're going to invest your dollars, you invest them there. And you, you don't invest them there to, you know, take that neighborhood and completely transform into something new. You just take care of business. You just maintain stuff, right? You've got a neighborhood that is paying for itself. That neighborhood should never have broken up sidewalks. That neighborhood should never have dead, disease trees that aren't replaced. That neighborhood should never be full of potholes, right? Like just do the basic maintenance, keep the parks mode, keep the libraries open, right? Make sure you've got police and firefighters, like just take care of business, right? Those places should not want for basics. That's 95% of your portfolio. That's what you do. Maintenance. You just take care of stuff. You make sure that things work. Gosh, Chuck, that's not fun. That's not sexy. you don't have to be smart to do that, Chuck. <laughs> right? Like we can't look out and say, you know, I'm the city who did this and this and made great things happen. Right? Uh, the survivorship bias—not looking at all the cities that failed, uh, trying the same thing. Right? You want to be—you want to be the one who uh, starts with ten thousand and ends up to be one of those twelve at the end that everybody says is a genius. Right? That's you. But when you realize that uh, you're not a genius, you're just lucky. It changes that, right? Changes that. Because you know, even if the world says you're a genius, you know, you're just lucky. You're just lucky. What do you do with that 5% then? Well, 5% becomes uh, your your money that you're trying to have the big gain on, right? That's the stuff that essentially you've said, uh, I'm going to invest this in things that, uh, could totally fail, uh, but could have huge upside potential. What, what do those projects look like? That's where I open my tactical urbanism handbook, right? That's where I, I look at my, uh, you know, small little incremental projects right that's where i do my my little things around the community to bump things in this direction or that that's that's painting crosswalks in the neighborhood where you see people walking but you got to get more people out right that's uh planting trees when you're trying to get the neighborhood to to move in the right direction that's the uh that's the stuff that we had Paul Stewart on in Oswego where you're uh, you know making small investments to get people to kind of match the dollars and fixing up the front of their place that's the better block guys who are going out saying like look look at what this street could be We're we're going to spend a small bit of money here to show you what it could be. Uh, Let's get everybody like bought into this vision and let's move it to the next step. This is the, uh, you know, the Mike Lydon street plans, collaborative tactical urbanism kind of approach uh, where you're going out and you're spending a little bit of money to to test things out and, and build up to the next level. Um, These are your incremental projects. That's 5% of your portfolio. You're looking out over a broad area saying, how do we make small investments over this broad area Uh, things that have uh, great upside potential, but individually, if they fail, we really haven't lost anything. We really haven't lost anything. Now, you have a public investment portfolio that has tremendous financial upside, but very limited financial downside. And by the way, if you've heard that phrase before, I say it all the time in the curbside chat, right? That's because the traditional development pattern The way we incrementally built cities for thousands of years around the world is exactly that. It is a pattern of development that has a very, uh, you know, limited financial downside, but has tremendous financial upside. And if you actually look at it, what you see is that this is a development pattern that uh, the wealth grew in plateaus, right? Like you would be at one plateau, then you would get a growth up to like the next plateau, then you get growth up to the next plateau. And like a plateau, it's very difficult to get knocked down to the next level, right? This is a strong, resilient way to grow. You don't lose. You just get upside potential. Now, what don't you get? What, 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 what am I sacrificing in my portfolio? What am I saying cities should be sacrificing in their portfolios? You sacrifice the moonshot, you sacrifice the ability to start with nothing and get a whole bunch of return. You, you limit your ability, not completely. Right. I still have some of that. I mean, liquid metal technologies could go to a thousand dollars a share and I could be a friggin' billionaire, right? It's not going to happen, but it could, right? I'm certainly not counting on it happening um you limit your ability uh to pretend you're a genius you limit your ability to essentially roll the dice and have it come out where you have above average gains but in exchange for that you take on enormous downside risk risk that i don't think any local government should be doing as a local government your position is a, is is to basically not blow up, to be, to be there tomorrow, to be strong, to be healthy, to be a, a, a kind of solid financial rock that doesn't go away. Gambling has no place in it, whether we think we're smart or not, whether we think we've got it figured out or not. I think that if we can have kind of uh, an understanding that uh, you know the the, the smartest uh, the, the gains that you get are not necessarily reflective of your intelligence. If we can divorce ourselves from that, and if, if we can create kind of an ethic that says, uh, you know, in local government, we're not looking for the people who are going to do the moonshot. We're not looking for uh, you know the person who's going to make things happen. We're not looking for the person who's willing to take great risk. Uh, you know, cause these are the heroes, right? Um, our stories as a culture, uh, you know, as a, as a culture, w- we revel in stories of people who are willing to take great risk. When it comes to our cities, we've got to dampen that we've got to go the other way. And we actually have to make our heroes, the people who are just going to be prudent the people who resist the temptation to take great risk, the people who actually just go about doing the job, doing the business, taking care of stuff, managing the 95% of the portfolio that is just plain boring because it's got to be there tomorrow. And let them be brilliant with the 5%, right? And actually think that we, you know, if we got people out investing 5% in small little projects trying to make things happen, uh, there are going to be a lot of brilliant people who do things and it fails. And I wouldn't call them failures, right? But you know, maybe society will. I would resist that. But there's going to be a, a bunch of people who try things out and they turn out amazing. And if we want to call them winners, we want to call them brilliant, we want to hold them up and say, you know, these are the best and the brightest among us. That's fine with me. Let's do that. But let's not do that with the people who are gambling with the other 95% of the portfolio because they're just lucky. And if we're going to hold those people up as successful, what we've got to do is at the same time, uh, be honest about the, all you know, the graveyard of failures out there who did the exact same things, but it worked out slightly differently. For reasons that you know are, are 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 not really perceptible or measurable or, or even all that uh, important, right? We got a responsibility to our cities. We got to turn them into strong towns, and and that's going to require us to have a far more sophisticated sense of what it means to make good investments. Let's get out there and do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, take care and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Welcome to 2018. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. <laughs> they know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.